Philippians chapter 1, uh, read verses 3 uh, through 11. Paul writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So last week we were kind of in verses 7 and 8 as we close it out. And so what I want to do is I want to kind of read you a quick story. Uh, and the goal is to try to explain or help us, I guess, to identify with what Paul writes in verse 7 when he says, It's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you on my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace. So remember again we talked about how the church in Philippi started as we talked about the, the uh, conversions of uh, the first individuals that he uh, shared the gospel with when he got to Philippi and uh, a lot of the events that took place there and so he does have a and I think this is true for many of the churches that he basically was a part of in helping to start and that is is that you develop this very close relationship with those that you lead the Christ and you disciple them and you know, things kind of get going and even though you move away and move on uh, that relationship remains pretty solid so there was a, a, real, a very well-known preacher in the 70s and 80s, uh, and even in part of the 90s down in Texas. Well, actually California, then Texas. Chuck Swindoll wrote a lot of good books. He was a really good communicator, a really good preacher. And so he tells the story of this friend he had um, that uh, used to be in the Marine Corps. Um, and this man became a believer after he was discharged from the Marines. So he says this, a number of months ago I ran into this fellow and after we talked a while, he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, you know Chuck, the only thing I still miss is the old fellowship I used to have with all the guys down at the tavern. I remember how we used to sit around and let our hair down. I can't find anything like that for Christians. I no longer have a place to admit my faults and talk about my battles where somebody won't preach at me and frown and quote me a Bible verse. He says, it wasn't one month later that in my reading I came across this profound paragraph. The neighborhood bar is possibly the best counterfeit that there is to the fellowship Christ wants to give his church. It's an imitation, dispensing liquor instead of grace, escape rather than reality. But, but it is a permissive, accepting, and inclusive fellowship. It is unshockable. It is democratic. You can tell people secrets and they usually don't tell others or even want to. The bar flourishes not because most people are alcoholics, but because God has put into the human heart the desire to know and be known, to love and be loved, and so many seek a counterfeit at the price of a few beers. With all my heart, the writer concludes, I believe that Christ wants his church to be unshockable, a fellowship where people can come in and say, I'm sunk, I'm beat, and I've had it. So he goes on and says that we need to ask ourselves uh, some pretty tough questions and here's some of the questions that he kind of throws out there that people should ask themselves. And they go this way. Number one, a woman discovers her husband is a practicing homosexual. Where in the church can she find help 
where she's secure with her secret. He says, or your mate talks about separation or divorce, to whom do you tell? Or maybe your daughter is pregnant and she's run away for the third time. She's no longer listening to you. Who do you tell that to? Or perhaps you've lost your job and it was your fault and you blew it. So there's shame mixed with unemployment. What, what do you tell? Who do you tell that to? Financially, you're unwise and you're in deep trouble. Or a man's wife is an alcoholic. Or something as horrible as getting back the biopsy from the surgeon and it reveals cancer and the prognosis isn't good. Or you had an emotional breakdown. To whom do you say it to? We're the only athlete I know that shoots its wounded. We can become the most severe, condemning, judgmental, guilt-giving people on the face of the planet Earth, and we claim it's in the name of Jesus Christ. And all the while, we don't know we're doing it. So what he was trying to do was to get us to, to kind of come to an understanding of, of how the church is to be, because we can move away from this idea that really what, what we are is we are a gathered group of individuals who were sinners saved by God's grace. And everyone here is on the same path. Now, I don't always agree with individuals who talk about us shooting our wounded, uh, because that, that is oftentimes used out of context. Uh, so an example would be this. A pastor's pastoring a church. He gets caught uh, committing adultery. He gets fired from his job. And people say, well, that's shooting your wounded. No, it's not. That's following what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say he's condemned. You still want to care and love him, but he's no longer the pastor. Right? So that's not an example of shooting your wounded. But the idea is... And it should be, and maybe it's just, maybe it's a unique thing in America because a majority of churches are made up of middle-class people, um, and we kind of have this sense of, uh, it's not really superiority, it's not that. It's almost like everything has to be prim and proper, and you always want to put on a certain kind of face when you gather with believers and it doesn't mean that we come here and always air our dirty laundry every week but there needs to be this idea where we are not afraid to share something personal because we're going to be rejected that's important we we need to be individuals who truly care you can be that way and still you know some people say well yeah but you have to be careful because you don't want that person to think you're approving of their sin you got to go a long ways to put that across. To be accepting of a person never means you're approving their sin. doesn't mean that. So don't be afraid of that. Just don't be afraid. Um, I think the easiest way, to be honest, uh, is to use your imagination. Okay? And what I, mean by, what I mean by that is this. Ron's a little bit older than I am. You know that, right? I know Ron knows that. <laughs> right, so let's say something goes on that's kind of whatever. And he comes and he tells me some bad things that have happened. I need to treat him like I would treat my father. That's what I need to do. No matter what's going on in my mind, I need, that's how I need to treat him. All right? So, if Lance comes and talks to me, unfortunately, Lance is probably the age of my oldest son, <laughs> which makes me an old man. However... But if Lance tells me something bad, some, something disappointing in his life, I want to treat him like I would my son. I'm not, so I'm not going to sit in judgment. Most of the time when someone's confessing something to you, you don't, they don't need your judgment. They already know what's wrong. They don't need more of that. What they want is, and when we encourage them, that doesn't mean you're telling them it's okay. 
Even if you say it's okay, you're not saying that the sin is okay. Most people aren't gonna most people aren't gonna think that. If Lance tells me something bad, I go, bro, listen, it's okay. You know, I'm, I'm gonna pray for you. He does not think, oh, Bob thinks my sin is okay. That's not what he's thinking. All right, so we don't have to worry about that aspect of it. The idea is, is so that this individual knows that he's still he's not gonna be rejected. We're not gonna throw him out on the street. We're still going to deal with the sin issue. We're still going to try to try and help the individual face the consequences. Or I might say, you know, this can carry a lot of consequences. So I'm going to be honest with him. But the goal is, where do we go with all of this? We go to Christ. Uh, we, you know, you confess your sin to, to Christ. There may be other steps involved. Maybe for whatever is being confessed. You know, I, I, if I'm talking to Lance, I might say, you know, Lance, you know, you're going to have to talk to A, B, C. If it's four people, you're going to have to talk to. Now, I'm willing to go with you if you want me to. I, I'm willing to, I'm going to definitely pray for you. And if you want me to go with you, I will. I'm not going to speak for you, but I'll go with you. So in other words, I need to be, be there for him in whatever way that means. That's what the church needs to be. And sometimes, and maybe often, sometimes we're not that because we're just not that close. That's why we have, you know, when we do all these different things that we do, we have the oyster roast, and we have after-church fellowships, and we have after-church potluck. The reason why we do all these things is not just because we like to eat. We do like to eat, but that's not the only reason why we do that. We do that because in our culture, which is true in most cultures, that's how people spend time together and get to know each other. That's what you do. And as you spend time with each other, the normal process of things is you begin to care more and more about the individuals you hang out with. That's, that's just how it is. And we want to promote that. So we're not just promoting it just because we all just want to have a good time together, but we do. But the idea is, is really to create that family atmosphere, not artificially, we want, to, we want it to be done genuinely, but we want it to be done so that when individuals are going through some great difficulty, whether it's their fault or someone else's fault or a combination, we can be there to lean on each other and to help each other out. And there's, most of the time, there's already enough shame anyway. No one's trying to shame anyone. Sometimes individuals, because they misunderstand church discipline, will say, well, man, we're not telling Bob because he'll tell the whole church. You have no idea all the things I've never said a word to the church about. Because the way that you read the Bible is, I don't tell the church every time someone messes up. There's, there's, we do church discipline. We've done it here. But there are very specific stages. And the goal is for the first stage to be enough. You meet with an individual, and you're taking care of the sin. It never goes beyond that. This, that's it. That's what the goal is. You don't want it to get to where you have to tell the church. When you have to tell the church, that's because the individual refuses to repent. That's when you get to that point. And it's a very sad day when you get to that point. And since there's no time frame... In the steps of church discipline, there's no rush. You know, there's no, you know, if I'm, if I'm talking to whoever, I don't say, well, you got 48 hours, I'm telling the church. <laughs> now, I might tell someone you got 48 hours to tell your wife, or I might tell them you got 48 hours to tell your husband, depending on what the deal is. But it's not, you got 48 hours and we're telling the church. No, 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 no. And, I, and it's never going to be, well, you know what? I gave you a chance. That's it. It's usually going to be two, three, in fact, usually, to be honest, it's never two chances. It's going to be four, five, or six. It's going to be a lot of them. We're going to give that individual as many opportunities as possible 
forced to try to resolve this in a biblical way without having to involve the rest of the church. We're not keeping secrets from them, but the goal is not to just kind of throw it all out there. And even when it comes to telling the church, you do know the goal of that is not to bring about embarrassment, though it will. It's so the whole church can begin to pray for that individual. Uh, and the goal is for that individual to come to repentance. And just so you know, sometimes that works. You know, we've had, we've had to get to the point where we've told the church, I think it's eight times since I've been here, we've had to get to that point. And I'm pretty sure that five of those is turned out well. In the end, whether it was very soon in, 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 in when, when the announcement was made, shortly thereafter, there was genuine repentance and we were on the road to, um, to healing. In, some of the, in three, at least three of the cases, there was, there's, to this day, there's been no, no repentance. And we should be saddened by that. And also, one of, one of my favorite things about that is when you tell the church, you know that immediately kills any gossip. Because what are you going to gossip about? Right? If, if Ron calls John and says, you hear about John Earl? John says, uh, yeah, brother, we were all there. <laughs> I mean, that kills it, right? There's, not, there's nothing to, you know. And, and, and even if Ron was like, I wonder what's going on. John says, well, remember, we, we know what's going on. They told us. <laughs> I mean, that just kills it. All right? And the whole point of that is, we, we, now, when we, even when we do that, we're not trying to spill all the beans, but enough so we understand what's going on and we can move forward. Some churches have done it wrong, and they, they, they paid for it. Uh, some pastors have used that as a tool to be vindictive. That's just not good. It's a bad thing when that takes place. Uh, so it, the, the goal then is to follow what the Bible says, but it begins with this kind of, I guess for lack of a better term, the emotional connection that Paul has with the people in this church and the connection they have with him. There's a genuine caring for each other. And as a result of that then, um, if, if when, when the church develops that, and it's something we always have to continually seek to develop, we want it to be that way. And then one more thing, just kind of as, as a side note that we need to remember, and that's this. Not everybody is blessed the same in this way. So I know that in my life, I'm extremely very well blessed. My parents, my, now my mom died last year, so this is just my dad, but they're believers. I have two sisters, they're believers. They're husbands, they're believers. A majority of my nieces and nephews are believers. My children are believers. My children's spouses are believers. Most of my grandchildren are believers. Some aren't of age yet, in a sense, but most of them are believers. Uh, and I'm expecting them all to be believers just based on, A, we're praying. We don't assume anything. Uh, but so we're very, I'm very well blessed. There are some people in the church, they don't have that. They don't have a mom and dad who know the Lord. They don't have extended family that knows the Lord. When they're together as a family, even if they're close, it's still very different. It's very different. I talked to a guy once, this was uh, early on in the, in the early 2000s, and he said that in his family, he was the only believer. And not only was he the only believer, 
his mom, his dad, his sister, her husband, her children uh, were antagonistic towards him and his faith. He would still go home, or he and his family would still go home, you know, at certain holidays, but he's just said, it's just, it's as empty as can be, and again, they're antagonistic, they make snide remarks, they do all kind of stuff just on purpose, you know, for whatever reason. He says, so, he says, this, he says, this, this is my, my family, this is where I go, this is where I know that I'm loved, this is where I want to be. And, you know, there are some people who have, they, had never, they had never even imagined that before. We sometimes just think, well, we're all the same. And in one sense, we're not. And so that was a, so we need to recognize, that's why sometimes we say, well, you know, I mean, I go to church, but I'm not, you know, I don't really need it that much. First of all, we all need a lot more than we think. Number two, there are others who need you to be there. You're their family. Imagine you go to a family reunion and your dad says, Dad, I don't need them that much. I'm not going to be there. Like, Dad, what's wrong with you? We want you here, right? We, we, there's a connection here, Dad. I don't know what you, have you hit your head? What's going on? You know, there's just something's off with that. All right, so we need to recognize, uh, again, it goes right back, I, I believe, to the basic of Book of Genesis and what God said to Adam. It's not good for man to be alone. God has created us to be social. Some of us are more social than others, so I'm not saying all of us have to be a social, you know, bunny. Uh, but the idea is that we all need that, and, it's, and that's important. So that's what Paul here, and that's what Chuck Swindoll was trying to, uh, um, trying to communicate. So in verse 7, he says, For you are all partakers with me of grace. Uh, remember again, Paul's in prison when he writes this. The Philippians had sent money to him. Uh, they sent money for him to use to help his ministry, which whether it was to buy him food, buy materials, pay for trip, whatever it was, they had sent him money. They sent um, Epaphroditus, which I believe was maybe one of the elders of the church, uh, and they wanted him to know they were supporting him. And so they were sharing uh, God's blessing in his ministry. Uh, they were partakers with him in that way. They were also partakers with him because they were saved the exact same way he was saved, by putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so there's that, that commonality. Again, grace, whenever you see the word grace in the Bible, grace is normally used in one of two ways. Uh, oftentimes, when we speak of the grace of God, what we might call the initial grace of God, when an individual comes to know Christ as their Savior, the word grace simply means a favor or something good is done for you that you've not earned or that you don't deserve. That's what that means. And so we all have received God's grace in that way. But we also pray for God's grace on a regular basis. So when we use the word grace that way, what we're asking God to do is, is to give us his sustaining strength. Right? I, I, want, I, want, I want God to bless my life where he gives me endurance, strength, peace, motivation. I want all those things that I need from him to continue to, to, continue to live the way he wants me to live, to minister the way he wants me to minister, all those things in a God in a godly way, we need his grace. We're dependent upon his grace. So that would be his sustaining grace. And so they're all partakers of that together. So then in the sharing of, of funds, as well as praying for him, they were being used by God to sustain Paul and what he was doing and how he was carrying on uh, in the ministry. So, uh, and, and again, we use the word grace because it's undeserved. 
Right? God doesn't say, you know, Bob's been working hard now for several years. I think he deserves some grace. That's not how that works. All right? This is not how hard I've been working. You know, Bob is, in fact, this is what God would say. You know, Bob is totally inadequate for everything I want him to do. He needs my grace every day. Yes, I do. All right? We, and we may think you have it. Like, you may think you're a great dad. If you are, terrific. You need God's grace to be a great dad. You need God's grace to be a good husband. Because remember, the goal, if you're a Christian, to be a good husband means you want to be what? A godly husband. All right? You want to be a good dad, it means to be a godly dad. Right? You, want, you want to follow what the scripture says. If you are someone's friend, which I think you all are someone's friend, you want to be a godly friend. Right? When someone asks you for advice, you want to give godly advice. That means it comes from the scripture. All right? And so we, the only way we're going to get that, the only way we're going to be able to accomplish that is through the help that God gives to us. We can't do that on our own. So look at verses 8 through 11 again. He says this, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So when Paul writes again here and he says, I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus, remember he was there before. He's talking about the ones I mentioned there at the beginning. That was Lydia. Remember Lydia was the first one he met. She and some ladies would go down to the river and they would pray. He heard about this prayer meeting and he would go there and he shared Christ and they all became believers. All right? That's who he's thinking about. All right? He's thinking about the slave girl that was, had been demonized, who was being used um, to make money for her owners with, with all these weird prophetic things that she was doing, and he's the one that cast the demon out of her. He's thinking of her. He's thinking of the Philippian jailer and his whole family when right after that earthquake, you know, he was going to commit suicide, and Paul said, don't do that, we're all here. And this guy flipped and just said, okay, he drops to his knees and wants to get saved. And, you know, he takes Paul to his house and addresses all of his wounds and basically basically says preach to my family we need this and Paul shares the gospel and they all come to Christ and they're baptized that's who Paul's thinking about uh, when it comes to all of this so he says I thank God in my remembrance of you these are the people he remembers he knows the church um, he was the one instrumental in winning the souls of this church in the beginning and I said as I already said he baptized them um, Every now and then I get, a, I'll get a, uh, I get a call every now and then from some people that I knew from the past. Um, sometimes it would be a guy that was in the jail when I was a jail chaplain. Uh, sometimes it might be for somebody that was saved at a church when I was an interim. And I got a call one time from this guy, and he says, is this Pastor Bob? And I said, yeah. And he said, I don't know if you remember me. And he starts telling me how he came to know Christ and how it saved his marriage. And it was all this great stuff. And I'm like, oh, who is this? Who is this? Who is this? I don't know who this is. You know, and, then he, and then he mentions that he was at Calvary when I was in the interim. Terrific. There's a thousand people there. Oh, what, uh, who is this guy? And so then he said this. He said, he said do you remember me? I said, I'm tr- I said, buddy, I'm trying hard. Then he said this. I'm the guy that when you baptized me, you slammed my head into the side of the pool. <laughs> and I went, oh, yeah. <laughs> I remember what? And what it was, the way the baptistry was set up, there was a stool that you actually sat on when you, when you would uh, dunk somebody. And someone had moved it. 
and I was unaware of it. And the way the pool was, it was like this, then up, then back out. And so because they moved it, there was a corner right there, and of course, none of us paid attention. And you know how gentle I am. And so when he went to get baptized, it was, and all there was was a, boom. I guess I felt really bad. Uh, thank goodness, though, he was a true believer. And uh, even though his head, his head did hurt, uh, he was very grateful. And, and then he told me afterwards when we were changing, he said, you know, he said, what I know is this, is I'll never forget my baptism. <laughs> I said, well, yeah, that's true. Uh, but he was just calling us to tell me how, how well he was doing. It was terrific. Uh, and it's always encouraging when you hear that. I got a call once from a guy. It was early in the morning, about 7 a.m. It was a guy who was calling me from Detroit, Michigan. I don't know anybody in Detroit. I know two guys from Detroit. Ron's one of them. But I don't know anybody. I'm like, who? But it was, it was an inmate. He'd been in the dorm back in the 90s when I was a chaplain. He'd become a believer. Um, he did a few years in prison, which he had to do. Um, he, uh, he then got out, he, um, got a job here, worked for a little while, he was able to move back up to, to Michigan where his mom was, and so out of the blue, he called me to let me know that he was doing well, taking care of his mother, he was working hard, how God had provided for him, and that he was involved in church. That was awesome. That was so terrific, just to hear that. Um, and so, you know, we have these, and there are people in your life, sometimes, you might be stunned by this. I've, I've met people who've told me, uh, where some, one time an individual said, you know, I was teaching Sunday school, I was teaching these high school boys, you know, this church several, several years ago, and, you know, they, they did it for a long time, never really thought much about it. And, and they said one day in church, this young man came up to him and said, you are my Sunday school teacher in Sunday school. And he didn't quite, you know, he didn't recognize him, and they, they talked for a while, and, and this is what the guy said. He said, you know, he said, I can never, he says, I really don't remember what you taught us, except it was from the Bible. But I remember you were unbelievably patient because we were a rowdy group. And you know, he said that actually meant a lot. As he reflected back on that, he said, I, I'm, he said I'm convinced God used your patience in my life and, and opened my heart uh, a few years after that to hear the gospel because I knew a couple of true believers and you were one of them. And it's because of your patience. How incredible is that? Who knew? Because it's not a whole lot of fun to hear someone say, yeah, I don't remember a thing he's taught. <laughs> you know, but that happens. Um, and so we don't want to uh, dismiss any interaction we have with people, but you will miss out on those things if we don't put in the energy that's required for us to get to know each other. And that's, and that's important. And we're not going to be best friends with everybody here. You know, we hit it off better with some people than with others. There's no, there's no sin in that. All right? The main thing is you're not leaving somebody out of your circle, that kind of thing. And we just, we live life together is really what it is. And we pray for each other uh, and seek to support each other at different times in life. And that's what um, Paul is talking about here when, uh, when he writes. So, so one of the things that's important about this is it helps us to recognize that the Bible, in a sense, it's a very real book. It's not a book where you read and it's like, God has spoken, here, take this, and it's kind of somehow, it's divorced from real life and real people. This is very much intimately intertwined with everyday life and everyday people. 
right? These are real people who really lived. This is not someone who had a vision from another planet and they're just kind of telling us stuff. These are those individuals who lived this stuff out. Yes, Paul did teach these things. Yes, that is from God, absolutely. But he lived it out. He lived it in his life. These people lived it in their lives. They were involved in each other's lives. They're, they understand the hardships as well as the blessings that they all went through. They went through this struggle together to, to live a life that was pleasing to God and praying and seeking to, to lead others to Christ and to honor Lord with every aspect of their life. And so that brings the Bible back down to earth. That's, there's many different reasons why the Bible is such a unique book and why it is so different from a lot of the other religious books that other religions have. You read those books and there's just, there's, there's a lot of things that's going to hit you at the same time. And one of them is, is the disconnect is insane. There's no real connection with who we are as people. I'm just convinced that's one of the great things about the Bible is that connection. I'm reading this a letter. Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians. He writes this. And then not only do these people read it, all right, then this letter we passed on to other churches. And they would read the letter that he wrote to the Philippians. And they would glean from that. You know, once I say, well, I have a friend. He goes to the church of Philippi. And, and in our church, we, we know Paul. Paul wrote to them. Oh, what did Paul say? And then they would, they would read that. And they would share that with each other. Um, and so this connectedness that's there... Uh, that's rooted in reality and not some, again, this mystical thing where the only time that God speaks to us, it's in this mystery and, you know, woo kind of stuff and whatever. It's just everyday living. And, and that's the beauty, the beauty of all this. Verse 9, he tells them that, so even though he's yearning with them and he prays for them, number one, he prays that their love may abound. So they do love each other but he wants their love to abound. In other words, the idea is to not be satisfied. So he's not saying your love for each other is not good enough, but the idea is that you want to increase. You want, you want the commitment that you have to each other to continue to grow, and, and that's what you want. So, and that can, be, that's a, that's a, that can be hard, in a sense, depending on where you, where you are as far as your attitude. One of the things I do try to do, you know, because I'm trying to say, okay, how do, I, how do I evaluate what I'm doing with people? And, and sometimes it... It can seem, um, you know, when you're in the flesh, it can seem like it's an unfair thing to ask, but I don't think it is. So if I get a, when I get calls from individuals wanting me to do certain things for them, sometimes I ask myself this question. If that was my sister, would I do it? Well, there's no hesitation. If that's my sister. Yeah, I'm doing it like right now. So why am I hesitating? Now, there may be times when you should, based on what's going on. But basically, the idea is, if I would do this instantly for my sister, why would I not do it for, you know, someone in the church, a believer, an individual that we know and care for? It, it, just do it. You know, it's, it's no, it's, it's not, a, even if it's an inconvenience, it's not an inconvenience. You know, that kind of thing. You know, it's an inconvenience, but it doesn't matter. Uh, kind of a thing. And so that's, that's kind of what he wants, is, is for, this, for this love. Remember that the love that we have for each other, even though he does mention affection uh, in verse 8, so affection is part of this. You know, we grow in that warm affection for each other. And in fact, 1 Corinthians 13 talks about that. But it's also this idea of love, which is, which is agape love, which is, which is this high level of commitment and loyalty. We ought to have a high level of commitment and loyalty to each other. In, in, in the same degree that, that God has this loyalty and commitment to us as his children. All right, that's where we need to be with that. To be committed. 
Um, and that's what he wants them to abound. So he says this in verse 9, And it is my prayer that your love may abound. So the word abound there carries the idea of exceeding the requirements. It's, it's of overflowing and overdoing. Um, the idea is that there is, is, to fix, is to exceed a fixed number of measure uh, or above a certain number or measure. It means to have would be more than enough to be extremely rich or abundant. Uh, the idea would be this, this, this. We're not the only church this happens to. I've heard this happening in other churches. But here what we often do when someone is, goes through uh, maybe surgery or they're having some kind of medical procedure, you know, we have a sign-up sheet and, and people will volunteer to help bring food so they don't have to cook or whatever. And almost always, people say, it's too much food. I mean, I don't know what you're doing, but it's too much food. Right? How about every other day or every third day? You know, because there's too much food. And then the, the person is actually burdened because they now have all these leftovers. Uh, when I was, uh, one time when Cindy's mom had cancer, she was real sick. The church we were going to, uh, and I didn't know they were going to do this. They just kind of told me to, and said, you know, uh, I guess they, they, what they probably should have said was, we know that you can't cook, so we're going to bring food for your kids because <laughs> your wife's gone. But anyway, so they were bringing food to our house. And there was, God, there was always so much food. I mean, I have four kids, not 40. Um, but they were bringing a lot of food, and one day there was a mix-up, and at 5 o'clock, this family came, and they brought, you know, there was salad and meat and potatoes and two vegetables and dessert and all this, and they left, and at 5.30, someone else showed up. <laughs> Sat, they got mixed up. There was two on the same day, and it was unbelievable. And so I, <laughs> so, I mean, there's just food everywhere. So I told my kids, I said, because all there's a bunch of neighborhood kids outside playing basketball. I said, go invite the kids over to eat. <laughs> we got so much food. They can eat now and they can go home and eat. But I mean, you're a teenage boy, so that's going to be easy. Uh, but it's just way too much. But the idea is, and I think I told you before about the one time I went to go see someone in the hospital. And uh, the nurse said, uh, are you the pastor? I figure who I was seeing, but they go, are you his pastor? I go, yes, ma'am. And, and they go, can you do me a favor? I go, yeah, sure. Can you tell your church to stop coming? <laughs> I was like, what? They go, there's too many people from your church coming to see him, and he can't get any rest. <laughs> all right, but that was great. And I didn't know all these people were coming. All right, but there was just apparently too many of them. And, uh, but again, the idea is, is that's kind of what Paul is wanting, uh, is, is we just... It, you go overboard. And we're not going overboard for show or for other people. The idea is you just can't help yourself. Right? You, just, you can't. Again, if there was someone in your family and they needed food, you're not going to go to their house and say, well, I brought you a drumstick. That's not what you're doing. You're bringing, you know, a bunch of stuff. And so that's kind of the idea. All right, so again, abound here is, uh, again, in the Greek is a progressive present tense, which means then that Paul wants the believers to continually overflow with love for each other. So it's not a seasonal thing. It's, it's an ongoing thing that he's talking about. So if there's this growing, maturing love, and again, it has to be worked at. We're not always this way. Um, but the idea is that we, we, we want to make sure that we're committed to this, to make sure that that is always happening because we're human beings. We're prone at times to let things slide. And so one of the things we do when I meet with our elders and with our deacons, sometimes we have, uh, the list we have right now is small. It varies from time to time when it comes to those who are widows in the church. Uh, but the Bible makes it really, really clear that the church is supposed to take care of the widows if they don't have Christian families who take care of them. 
All right, so if they have Christian family, then no worries. But if they don't, that falls on us. And so we make sure, we go through the list and make sure, is this person okay? Is everything going the way it's supposed to? Do we need to do this? Do we need to do that? Um, we want to make sure we're doing that. I was reading, uh, there was a, um, a guy named John Chrysostom. He had a, a church in Istanbul. This is a long time ago. John Chrysostom, his nickname was Golden Mouth because of his, the way he would preach. Apparently it was incredible. And his sermons were about 90 minutes long. But this is, this is like, I think, when, when did he live? Was it before 1000 AD? Yeah, yeah it was before 1000 AD. But anyway, it was a long time ago. And, and I, never, I, don't, I didn't really have an idea of how big his church was, but they said the church had to have been huge because they found a list of the widows they took care of. It's 1,500. Meaning they made sure 1,500 widows ate every day. All right, they, they, they were in charge of, the, of daily feeding their widows. That's just how the system was back then. There was no system like we have now, so the church, they fell on the church uh, to do that, because even families back then didn't feel obligated to, to help a widow, um, even if it was your own mom. It's kind of a weird thing. But that's, man, that's pretty huge. It's a big responsibility. Um, but they took that very seriously and had had themselves organized uh, to be able to make sure uh, that they were being taken care of. And so that's, that's what the church is supposed to do. Um, so if we have a lady who's a widow, um, now, we also look out for the widows who do have Christian family, but you know, we're there to supplement, or they may have family that's, that's outside the state. And so, again, we want to be there for them. So that then means that when, um, if they have an air conditioner that breaks, and let's say they need a new one, if, if, now if they have the means, then they can buy it. If they don't have the means, guess who has to step up to the plate? It's us. We have a choice. We don't do it begrudgingly. We're going to do it. And we've done it. But that's the responsibility. I'm convinced if more churches did that kind of thing, I think we might have maybe even a, a much more powerful witness in the community. Um, I have tried my best to bring shame to certain churches, not in public, but just to them, because they don't take care of their own. I mean, I've scolded them, called the pastor up, and I go, man, I thought you were a Christian. They go, what are you talking about? Well, you got this lady in your church, and her, she has a $600 electricity bill, and you guys gave her 25 bucks. What is that about? You need to pay the bill. What do you guys do? Oh, we pay the bill. Oh, you do? I said, yeah. I said, does she have Christian family? Well, no. I said, it's on you. Got to do it. All right? And so, so it's very practical. So even when it comes to this idea of growing in Christ and wanting to serve him, which we do, we serve him by serving each other. And again, it's not just praying for each other, but it's important. It's not just making sure that we're growing in Christ, so that's obviously important. It's covering everything. And so that is a, a major part of that, to make sure that we're doing that, um, that we care for each other uh, in very real, tangible ways and meet the needs um, that are there. He also says here that, um, That not only does he want their love for each other to abound more and more, but he says with knowledge and all discernment. So the idea here is this. The full knowledge, which these, and I'm going to read to you from a guy named Kenneth Wiest. He did a, uh, a bunch of word, Greek word studies throughout the New Testament. Uh, it's, it's an old work. It's really good. One of my favorites. And he says this. 
The full knowledge which these Philippians needed to gain by experience was a better understanding of God's word as translated into their experience and a clearer vision of the Lord Jesus in all the beauty and fragrance of his person. A Christian can have an understanding, knowledge, of the word, that is, be able to explain its meaning to others without having an experiential knowledge of the same. But when that Christian has put the word of God into practice in his life, then he has what Paul is talking about here. This is the difference between a young convert and a matured believer. The former has not had time to live long enough to live out the word in his life. The latter, the latter has. The former, if his life is wholly yielded, is a delight to look upon in his Christian life as one would enjoy the vigor and sparkle of youth. The latter, the more mature, in his mellowed, well-rounded, matured, and fully developed Christian experience, his life full of tender reminiscences uh, of his years of companionship with the Lord Jesus has the fragrance of heavenly things about him. So the idea then is that the knowledge we have of God translates into everyday living. Right? In the same way that it's supposed to be with marriage. In marriage, when you marry your spouse, you know a lot about them, but there's a lot you don't know. There's a lot you're going to learn along the way, all kinds of things. And what's supposed to take place is as you mature and live life together and experience life together, you're going to grow closer together because you know each other better. The idea is with that then is this. So with your spouse, there may be certain things, there's a knowledge of your spouse that maybe most people have. They can tell by looking at them how tall they are, what color their eyes are, what color hair, maybe how much they weigh, that we won't talk about that. Um, a lot of different things that everybody has knowledge of. But there's other things that you're, the spouse is the only one who has knowledge. You know how they will feel in a certain situation. You know how to anticipate how they're going to respond to certain things. Why? Because you've experienced life together. That is the kind of experiential knowledge that we have as Christians. So we know what the Word of God says, but as we live out the Word of God, we know who Christ is, but as we live out the Word of God and we experience the comfort of God, we now have experiential knowledge of what God has talked about when it comes to His comfort. I know what the Word says. I know that He says He will comfort us, but then when I've experienced that, then that makes that that knowledge stronger because now it's in that sense more complete. That's kind of the idea. And so that's what's supposed to happen with us both as individual believers then also as a church. So there's this idea that we don't only then mature as individuals, but even the church should mature. Right? Even though the church is always in a sense going to have a mixture of those who are new believers and those who are mature believers, you know, in the life of, especially in our country, you know, people move away, people move in, you're going to have all those kinds of things and all that's normal. But there still should be a sense where the, as the church as a whole is maturing and moving in a particular direction. And, and what that normally will mean is that often younger believers will grow faster because of the maturity of the church and where the church is at, how people talk, how they behave, you know, that type of thing. Um, you know, the church, uh, one of the things about this church, and this church was like this before I got here, so it's got nothing to do with me. The church has always been very, very generous. And, and, and they've always had a really strong trust in the Lord. Well, one year, um, someone gave a, a pretty large gift uh, of money to the church. And um, what we normally do is about 15% of everything that's given is taken right off the top and goes into mission funds just immediately. That's what happens. Um, and so there was a church 
that I was talking to in Beaufort, and they had a ministry in the Ukraine. And they had, uh, in Kiev, they had helped to build a uh, orphanage there, a Bible college, and then they were helping to build a seminary. And there were several sister churches in some of the different towns in the Ukraine. So we were going to send a guy from our church to join them in their church on a trip to the Ukraine. And he was going to go to one of these villages and see what was going on, see maybe what, what we could do to help, that kind of thing. So I don't remember the name of the, name of the town he went to, but he came back and, and he said, uh, he said they're, they're, doing, they're building a, 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 an orphanage and they're, they're building it on their own. The only money they spend is money on materials. And he explained how, they, how this church group that, that had these sister churches in all these different towns, how they ran their orphanages. Uh, because they're in the Ukraine, uh, the state-run orphanages are no good. Um, and so they were basically in a loving home. Uh, there were Christian couples that were committed, and they were loving them, caring for their needs, as well as teaching them the Word of God, and the whole thing that you would expect from a Christian orphanage. And he said, look, he said, they're working really hard, and they're short of funds. And uh, I said, well, how, how much do they need to be able to, um, to finish the orphanage? He said, well, it's a lot. He said, it's about 50 grand. He says, I was hoping maybe, maybe we could give $5,000, you know, to kind of help them. And I said, you know, I said, no. I said, we can't do that. And he said, oh, man. He goes, I was just hoping. I said, well, I'm not done. I said, I, I think we should give 50 grand. He said, what? I said, well, the Lord's been good to us. We got the money. I think we should give the 50 grand. He goes, that would be awesome. I said, well, we need to start praying. Got to talk to the deacons. Then talk to the congregation. It's a lot of money. So this is what I did. So I got out a piece of paper. I'm trying to think. Okay, the deacons are going to say, oh, man, that's a lot of money. So I'm going to have to have all these reasons why we should send all this money to them. And I had, I think, nine written down. I'd really thought it out. So, you know, I've been praying about it. And the time came for the meeting explain to them about, you know, what I was told about what was going on in Ukraine, about this orphanage. And I said, gentlemen, I said, I'm, I'm convinced God has blessed us. We have this money. I've checked with all the other missionaries that we support. No one has any projects going on, blah, 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 blah. This church needs 50 grand, and I think we should send them the 50 grand. And then I got ready. I was going to answer the questions. And the one deacon said, sounds like a good idea. And the other deacon said, I make a motion. We send 50 grand. Like, you know, it's after they, once someone seconded it, and then, they said, and then uh, the chairman said, well, are there any questions? And then one guy said, well, one question, how are we going to get the money? And so I explained to them how the money would get there, and they go, okay. Boom, done. I was like, wow. Well, the Lord's been good. Congregation is next. There's a little bit of a difference presenting it to 12 guys and now presenting it to the congregation. So I said, okay, I got, all, I got the first nine down. What else could somebody ask, even some off-the-wall question that might, you know, throw a wrench in this? Because I really want us to be able to do this. So we had the congregation meeting. We go through the reports. And then I, I said, okay, there's a recommendation from the deacons. And this is uh, what we're recommending uh, that we send them $50,000 and someone raised their hand and said, well, how will we get that kind of money to them? And I explained how that would work and whatnot. And uh, then someone said, 
I make a motion, we send, I mean, it was just boom. It's incredible. It's absolutely unbelievable. It's terrific. And so, you know, the money's not for us to get rich. Give it away. And so, boom, off it went. And so they, and then we got pictures. I think it was about a year and a half later. We got pictures where they had finished building the building. Um, and it was just terrific uh, to see all that. So that's kind of the idea um, of what was, so as the church matures, you know, you don't, you're not going to have infighting. Because I remember at one church, uh, somebody gave, actually went out and bought a water fountain for the church, and the church still couldn't figure out where to put the water fountain, and so they argued about that. It's amazing. Anyway, he also says this, which kind of goes along with that. He says not only does he want them to be able to, uh, to grow more and more with knowledge, but he also says, and discernment. So discernment is just another level than when it comes to knowledge. It's in the area of wisdom. So it's the capacity to have an understanding uh, of what's going on. There's, there's an, an intellectual acuteness uh, where there's a moral sensitivity or a moral perception or insight where you understand how the Word of God applies to certain things. Because, you know, when you read the Bible, it, it's not always real clear in the sense of should you go see this movie or should you go to this event or should you go do this? How, how do you figure all that out? Well, the Bible does instruct us and we can use the Bible to understand it. But how do you do all that? Well, as you mature in the Word of God, you then, the church kind of develops this, this moral sensitivity and an understanding of this is how the Word of God applies in this situation. This is what you should think about. And, and these are the questions you need to answer first before you do this uh, and that kind of thing. And so that's what, that's what he means by all discernment. It's kind of a, a very deep knowledge uh, of the Word of God in that sense. A, a working knowledge is probably the best way to put it. Where uh, you reason through the Scripture or you reason from the Scripture. Um, if, you've, if you've never read Francis Schaeffer, uh, one of the things he does is he reasons from the Scripture. There's a lot of guys who do apologetics. And there's a lot of great apologetic works out there. Um, I am partial to Francis Schaeffer because that's what I first read a long time ago. But I do think his approach is different in that when you read through his things, you kind of can see how he reasons through things. He, he, so even though there's a lot of good apologetic books, that, you know, apologetics is the defending of the faith and proving that God exists, that the Bible can be trusted. And, and all that is great. There's a lot of great stuff out there. But we also want to be able to think through and see how the Word of God interacts with culture and how we understand culture and, and how do we respond, what kind of questions do we ask, that kind of thing. So he does that in his, in his works, um, which I think is really very helpful. Uh, there always seems to be this question that he has, or at least this thought, and that is, is he wants to be able to truly communicate the reality of God's existence to both believers and non-believers. It's not, just, it's not just winning the argument. He wants to win the argument, but it's not just winning the argument. Because remember, it doesn't matter if you win the argument. The goal is to expose them to who God is. Right? So that doesn't really become illogical. We don't do that. But the way that you do that, we need to care about those individuals. Uh, the goal is to bring them along and help them to discover the truth. This isn't to badger them with the truth of the Word of God. It's easy to, you can easily get into that. Because sometimes unbelievers can be very irritating. And so you just want to mash them, you know, with, with, uh, with whatever you got going on. And you don't want to do that, all right? These individuals, they're non-believers. There's reasons why. There's who knows what the background is um, and why they may be belligerent. It may be just arrogance. 
But there may be something else that's feeding that. So the idea then with discernment is that it's not just that then I, that I have all the arguments supposedly lined up to deal with apologetics. It's I want to be able to present these things to help that individual know who God is. That's what the goal is. I want them to be able to hear and understand the gospel of Christ. I, I do want to answer their questions, absolutely. I do want to point out if, if their thinking is flawed. But the way we do that is really important. Uh, I don't want them to think that I'm arrogant. Now, if they think that, I, 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 I want to make sure that they've just made that up in their head and I'm not acting arrogant. I want to make sure that I, I want to sound like I know what I'm talking about without berating them or belittling them. That's what I want to do. And I think you can learn to do that through time. Because, that's again, it's not about who's the smartest guy in the room. Like, I just assume from the beginning they're already smarter than me, so I'm already one down. Uh, and that's Okay. Uh, the goal is I want them to see who Christ is. And so that's, that's the idea. So this discernment thing and how we love each other, care for each other, and, and move together as believers is really important. And that's what Paul is praying for. So, so Paul never, even though he loves his church dearly, it's never this idea that, that they've come a long way and everything is now fine. We want to continue to progress. We want to continue to move to, move, to be more like Christ. We want the whole church to be like this. Uh, and that's what he is uh, wanting to do, what he's praying for uh, when it comes to that. What's interesting is, in, in, uh, if you just look up the word discernment, of course, I know there's many different dictionaries now, but in some of the dictionaries, that if you look up the word discernment, it's the power to see what is not evident to the average mind and stresses accuracy as in reading character or motives. Man, we live in a day and age when people, they don't like that. You know, you start, you start discussing with individuals what you think their motive is or different things. They get like, well, who do you think you are? That's why you always want to go back, well, this is what the scripture says. Because the Bible is a great psych- psychological manual. It is awesome. I mean, it says in the Bible that it, that it sharpened a two-edged sword and it divides the bone from the marrow. It, it divides the soul. You, you can, it, it penetrates so we want to be able to communicate the truth of the Word of God in helping an individual dissect who they are psychologically, yet at the same time making it clear that this is coming from God, not from you. So that, so that, so that the Word of God does its work in their heart and their life. So discernment then, so as you read the Bible, and as you meditate on the Bible, and as we grow as Christians, uh, we, we more and more will get to that point to where we're, we're able to do this. It's not a thing that we do to brag, it's, and, it's, and it's not even necessarily something you do to, that others can see. You have this ability. You're able to read and figure out uh, the motive of that individual, and then you just kind of incorporate that as you speak to that individual about whatever it is that you're speaking about. And, and the goal, again, is to point them to Christ. And so that's what Paul is uh, wanting these individuals to do. So again, it's a love that abounds in all discernment. That means it's a love that's controlled by theology. Theology must be applied to life with insight. Um, it is used of moral and spiritual concepts and actions that involve delicate and keen distinctions, those that require a deep, keen discernment to recognize. So, you want, again, you want to be able to help individuals dissect, even maybe the way they're thinking about things. I was talking to a guy this afternoon about this, and so he was just kind of commenting about a situation that he wanted to stay away from. And then he said, well, you know what I mean, I don't want to burn. So I said, whoa, 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 whoa. Well, what do you mean you want to burn? He said, well, you know, I, I, you know, I, I don't want to go to hell. I said, well, time out. I said, you stay in this situation. That's what God wants you to do, but 
You, you think if you give in, you're going to go to hell? I said, that's not what the Bible says. You don't go to hell for that. If, if, if you're not a believer, you go to hell for all your sins, even the ones you don't think are bad. So when you make that statement, oh, I don't want to burn, you're, you're approaching the entirely the wrong way. If you are a believer, you are saved by the grace of God, and that's where we put all of our hope and our trust. As a believer, God will give you his grace to make right decisions. And the right decision, which I think you've made, is to stay away from the situation. That's terrific. But I don't want you thinking somehow that there's this threat hanging over your head, that if you blow it, that somehow you're, you're going to burn. I said, that, that's, that's not, you're not thinking the way that God wants you to think. Then he said, oh, so it's okay if I go over that? I said, whoa. I said, when did I say that? I said, I agree with you that he said was right. That would be sin. I said, but when you start in this line of thinking you have, thinking that you're going down, you're going to end up convincing yourself that I can go over there. I said, you can't. I said, because you've already stated you know what God wants you to do, and I'm agreeing with you that that's right. But I don't want you thinking in this wrong way or an immature way that somehow you're going to go to hell if you do that. I said, that, you may think that's motivating. That will never be enough motivation. What you and I need to be motivated by is our love for Christ because of his love for us. That is what's going to linger and stay. And then, of course, thank goodness, in time, he goes, oh, okay, I'm, I'm getting it now. Right. Of course, I did say, I hope so, because I'm going to test you tomorrow. But anyway, uh, but again, the idea is we want to be able to make those distinctions and help others make those distinctions because it matters in the long run. Anyway, I keep looking up on the wall for the clock, and it's behind me. But it is time. Let's pray. And uh, we'll pick it up in verse... Uh, in verse 10 uh, um, tomorrow, I mean uh, next Wednesday. Father, we thank you again for your grace and kindness, and we just ask, Lord, that you will guide and direct us and that you'll burn these truths deep into our hearts and minds, helping us, Father, to grow and to mature in our love for each other, most definitely in our love for you. Help us, Father, in applying the word to ourselves and helping others to apply it to their life. That, Father, we may grow, that, again, our lives may please you, that we may be an encouragement to other people. Use this, Father, as you see fit. And so we ask now that as we go home, uh, that you'll dismiss us with your blessing and keep us safe. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.